transition happened in the midst of career glory. Imagine John F. Kennedy chucking politics in June 1960 in favor of billiards. Popular and intriguing, Duchamp was the toast of art patrons in Paris, New York, and beyond. Now, at his peak, he was turning away from all this. Days that would ordinarily have been filled receiving admiring gallery owners and customers and late nights that would have included dinner parties and more studio work, instead became packed with one chess game after another, after another, after another. Between games, Duchamp engaged in the silent, monastic study of chess problems. Thousands of tricky endgame scenarios labored over by most serious players. By his early thirties, the transition was complete. Apart from the design of some chess sets, Duchamp was producing virtually no art. He shocked friends by bluntly declaring that he was giving up his old career to become a full-time chess player. I play day and night, he declared in 1919 at age 32, and nothing interests me more than to find the right move. For hours at a stretch, taking just enough time for meals in between, Duchamp played alone in his apartment, with friends and strangers at cafes, and even in the midst of loud art world parties. This new life involved not just a reordering of his work and social priorities, he explained to friends, but also his very consciousness. Everything around me takes the shape of the knight or the queen, he said, and the exterior world has no other interest for me other than its transformation to winning or losing positions. Even true love could not moderate his fixation. In 1927, Duchamp married Lydia Sarrazin Lavasseur, a young heiress. On their honeymoon, he spent the entire week studying chess problems. Infuriated, his bride plotted her revenge. When Duchamp finally drifted off to sleep late one night, Lydia glued all of the pieces to the board. They were divorced three months later. Large rocks, severed heads, and flaming pots of oil rained down on Baghdad, capital of the vast Islamic empire, as its weary defenders scrambled to reinforce gates, ditches, and the massive stone walls surrounding the fortress city's many brick and teak palaces. Giant wooden majonic catapults bombarded distant structures, while the smaller, more precise Arata catapult guns pelted individuals with grapefruit-sized rocks. Arrows flew thickly, and elite horsemen assaulted footmen with swords and spears. The horses trample the livers of courageous young men, lamented the poet Al-Karami, and their hooves split their skulls. Outside the circular city's main wall, 100 feet high, 145 feet thick, and six miles in circumference, soldiers pressed forward with battering rams, while other squads choked off supply lines of food and reinforcements. Amid sinking boats and burning rafts, bodies drifted down the Tigris River. The impenetrable city of peace was crumbling. In the fifty years since its creation in A.D. 762, young Baghdad had rivaled Constantinople and Rome in its prestige and influence. It was a wildly fertile axis of art, science, and religion, and a bustling commercial hub for trade routes reaching deep into Central Asia, Africa, and Europe. But by the late summer of A.D. 813, after nearly two years of civil war, between brothers no less, the enlightened Islamic capital 
was a smoldering, starving, bloody heap. In the face of disorder, any human being desperately needs order, some way to manage, if not the material world, at least one's understanding of the world. In that light, perhaps it's no real surprise that, as the stones and arrows and horses' hooves thundered down on Baghdad, the protected core of the city hosted a different sort of battle. Within the round city's imperial inner sanctum, secure behind three thick circular walls and many layers of gate and guard, under the luminescent green dome of the Golden Gate Palace, Muhammad al-Amin, the sixth caliph of the Abbasid Empire, spiritual descendant of and distant blood relation to the Prophet Muhammad, sovereign of one of the largest dominions in the history of the world, was playing chess against his favorite eunuch, Kalthar. A trusted messenger burst into the royal apartment with urgently bad news. More inglorious defeats in and around the city were to be reported to the caliph. In fact, his own safety was now in jeopardy. But Alamin would not hear of it. He waved off his panicked emissary. O commander of the faithful, implored the messenger, according to the medieval Islamic historian Jirgis al-Makan, this is not the time to play. Pray, arise, and attend to matters of more serious moment. It was no use. The caliph was absorbed in the board. A chess game in progress is, as every chess spouse quickly learns, a cosmos unto itself, fully insulated from an infant's cry, an erotic invitation, or war. The board may have only 32 pieces and 64 squares, but within that confined space, the game has near infinite depth and possibility. An outsider looking on casually might find the intensity incomprehensible, but anyone who has played the game a few times understands how it can be engrossing in the extreme. Quite often, in the middle of an interesting game, it's almost as if reality has been flipped inside out. The chess game in motion seems to be the only matter of substance, while any hint of the outside world feels like an annoying irrelevance. The messier the external world, the more powerful this inverted dynamic can be. Perhaps that is why Caliph Alamin, who sensed that his hours were numbered, preferred to soak in the details of his chess battlefield rather than reports of the calamitous siege of his city. On the board, he could see the whole action. On the board, he could neatly make sense of significant past events and carefully plan his future. On the board, he still might win. Patience, my friend, the caliph calmly replied to his messenger, standing only a few feet away and yet a world apart. I see that in a few moves I shall give Kalthar checkmate. Not long after this, Alamin and his men were captured. The sixth Abbasid caliph, victor in his final chess game, was swiftly beheaded. Chess lived on. The game had been a prominent court fixture of Caliph Alamin's predecessor and would voraciously consume the attention of his successor, and the Caliph after that, and the Caliph after that. Several centuries before it infected feudal Christian Europe, chess was already an indelible part of the landscape adjoining the Tigris and Euphrates. This simple game, imbued with a universe of complexity and character, demanded from peasants, soldiers, philosophers, and sovereigns an endless amount of time and energy. In return, 
it offered unique insights into the human endeavor. And so, against all odds, it lasted. Games, as a general rule, do not last. They come and go. In the 8th century, the Irish loved a board game called Fidchel. Long before that, in the 3rd millennium B.C., the Egyptians played a backgammon-like race game called Senate. The Romans were drawn to Duodecum Scripta, played with three knucklebone dice and stacks of discs. The Vikings were obsessed with a game called Nevatuffel in the 10th century, in which a protagonist king attempted to escape through a ring of enemies to any edge of the board. The ancient Greeks had Patea and Kubia. These and hundreds of other once popular games are all now long gone. Contrast this with chess, a game that could not be contained by religious edict, nor ocean, nor war, nor language barrier. Not even the merciless accumulation of time, which eventually washes over and dissolves most everything, could so much as tug lightly at chess's ferocious momentum. It has, for numberless ages, wrote Benjamin Franklin in 1786, been the amusement of all the civilized nations of Asia, the Persians, the Indians, and the Chinese. Europe has had it over a thousand years. The Spaniards have spread it over their part of America, and it begins lately to make its appearance in these states. The game would eventually pass into every city in the world and along more than 1,500 years of continuous history. A common thread of pawn chains, knight forks, and humiliating checkmates that would run through the lives of Karl Marx, Pope Leo XIII, Arnold Schwarzenegger, King Edward I, George Bernard Shaw, Abraham Lincoln, Ivan the Terrible, Voltaire, King Montezuma, Rabbi Ibn Ezra, William the Conqueror.